We are looking at John's eyewitness account of the upper room feast on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And we began last week by diving into the tragic account of Judas Iscariot, a man who over three years of ministry appeared to be a sincere follower of the Lord, a man who apparently did all the right things, said all the right things in order to fit in. He was a man who became a close friend to Jesus and to the fellow disciples. He preached the gospel. He healed. He drove out demons in the name of Jesus. He even felt the power of God working through him, yet he was never born again. He never surrendered his heart to the Lord. And we saw last Sunday, we talked about how this man, above all, had so much direct evidence of who Jesus was, right? Uh, he watched the finest life ever lived out in front of him. So we talk about, well, people don't have a good model of faith. Judas had the best model of faith lived out right in front of him. He had the best teaching, right? He heard all of the sermons, the best teaching that you can possibly have. He saw some of the most astounding miracles, and yet in the end, it did not save him. And so we drew this important conclusion as a warning for all of us to hear just being active in church life, as wonderful as that is, attending church events, caring for others, serving, even preaching is no guarantee that spiritual life is actually present in that person. Yes, it's true that scripture says that a Christian will be known by their spiritual fruit, that we can look at one another's lives and we can, we can test the fruit, so to speak, but I have news for you this morning. Spiritual fruit can be, can be faked. As we say, it can be stapled onto a, a tree that's not living. It can be faked, for a time at least. It can be faked. And that's what we saw with Judas. Not one of the other 11 disciples suspected that he was a traitor. So that means he was either a tremendous actor or he just played his cards really close to the vest. He never really opened up and talked about the doubts that he had. But here's the thing, that type of spiritual charade cannot go on for a lifetime. Eventually, what's really in the heart of a man, a man's highest love, is going to be revealed over time. And for Judas, when the moment of decision came, he was done playing the role of being a disciple, and he fell away. Now, last Sunday, I used the term fall away several times, and I was really excited. Several of you came up and said, hey, I'm a little confused by that term. What does that mean? You know, what are the implications of that? So let's talk about it briefly. That phrase, fall away, is biblical language. In fact, we've already heard it once this morning in our call to worship from Hebrews 3. Let me put it back on the screen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's the verb there is apostani, and it's where we get our word apostasy from. Now, the group of people in that verse that you see on the screen that's being said to fall away is the group of Israelites in the days of Moses who grumbled against God in the wilderness, right? So it's important to know that they were outwardly a part of God's community, but they weren't trusting in the living God. So we got to make sure we understand that they were part of, I'm not going to say the church, but part of Israel, part of the God's community in that day, but were not saved. They were not trusting in the living God. So when things got hard out there in the wilderness, guess what? Their idols came to the surface of their heart, they grumbled against God, and they fell away. And then last Sunday, we looked at maybe the hardest passage in the entire New Testament, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. We'll look at it again. Really, really difficult. 
For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Severe language, right? Difficult passage. Now that passage is not directed towards Israel. It's directed towards members of the church in the first century, specifically to Jewish men and women who had come to know Christ but were now considering going back to Judaism. And so you have to understand the context and the audience of the book of Hebrews or else you'll get really messed up. This is one of the so-called five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, written to warn people who have made a start on their faith In other words, they've been intellectually persuaded by the gospel or even emotionally persuaded by the gospel, but not born again. And therefore are in danger of falling away and going back to something far less good than Jesus, right? Far inferior to Jesus. Now, look at the underlined portions on the screen here. They had once been enlightened, meaning that they had received the elementary teaching about the basic principles of the gospel, They had tasted of a number of things, of the heavenly gift, the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, meaning they had had a brief experience with the Lord. But like the the seed that falls on the rocky ground in Jesus' parable of the soil, it was a brief experience and there was no time or depth for for that seed to take root. And so they fell away. And then these folks even became partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's the hardest phrase in that in that passage, and I believe it's a reference to the fact that these people were fellowshipping within a community that was living out the gifts of the Spirit. They were eyewitnesses to how the power of the Spirit was working in the church. Not that they themselves received the Holy Spirit, but they were eyewitnesses to how the Spirit is exercised in the body. And so here's the warning that all churchgoers today ought to take from this. You can begin well in the faith. You can get a taste of the beauty of the gospel. You can get a taste of the the fellowship in the church and still never really surrender to Christ and never be born again. And I have seen this. Some of you guys can testify. Over 20 plus years of ministry, I've seen people come into churches where I've been a pastor and I've seen them fall away. And it is heartbreaking every single time. Most of you probably know somebody as well. Folks that gave every outward impression that they were of us, right? That they, they, that they were in the faith and wanted to grow in their faith. But then over time, the truth about them came out. What was really important to them, what their first love was. And they fell away. They wanted nothing more to do with Jesus or the church. Now, it's important to understand that the language used here in Hebrews 6 isn't describing somebody that casually wanders away in ignorance. There's an implication here that this is somebody who has been enlightened by the truth, Okay, but then intentionally, deliberately rejects Jesus. In fact, you see there in verse 6 that this is a person who walks away from the faith and then aligns themselves with the enemies of God, re-crucifying him in the public square. It's very severe. It's describing a spiteful apostate. I, I showed you these people last week, and we talked about each one of them. This is what we're talking about here. These are men who have fallen away from the faith, who have now attacked Christianity, attacked the church, and they have put shame to the name of Jesus and to his bride. So let me say this clearly just to make it, 
to make it really, really, really obvious. If a person falls away from the Lord in this intentional way, walking away from the community of faith, you can know, according to scripture, that all along they were never a believer, that they were playing church. We know that from the Bible. If they had truly believed, Jesus would have held them firm in his hand and would not have let them go. We read from 1 John 2.19 last week. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And I'll be honest with you, when you read the testimonies of these folks who have fallen away, they hate that verse from 1 John 2. They will reject it. They'll say, don't you tell me what I believed. And I'll say, I believe what scripture says. You were playing church. You didn't believe. You were never born again. So hopefully that helps to clear things up. If you have any more questions, please come see me. If you haven't already, let's open up our Bibles to John 13. John 13, we're in the same passage we were last week. Again, I'm going to walk through the narrative, and, and I'm not going to break it down this week because I spent quite a bit of time last Sunday doing that. So again, go to our website or the YouTube page, and you can hear us break down this narrative. By the way, I was reflecting on, I, I said last week, I think for the day we're living in, the story of Judas is really important for the church. And it dawned on me this week why I think that's partly true. 1 Corinthians 11 came to mind, this very famous chapter where this, this liturgy that we have as we come to the Lord's table, we read it almost every single month, right? And here's how it begins. On the night that the Lord was betrayed. Now think about this for a second. Of all the things that could be remembered about that night, the betrayal is the thing that stands out to Paul. He could have said, look, on the night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, or on the night that he gave them a new commandment about love, or on the night which he spoke to them about the, the coming Holy Spirit, or the night in which he prayed for his disciples and the future church. But no, he focuses on the betrayal. He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is a serious thing. This is a very important passage. So read, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you, Jesus says. He's talking to, talking to the 12 now. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. That's the, the mic drop moment, right? It must have gone really quiet. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which, which one he was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that being John, right? So Simon Peter gestured to him, probably from across the table, and said to him, Psst, tell us who it was that he's speaking. He, John, leaning back thus on, on Jesus' bosom, whispered to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. We saw last week how that giving of the morsel was this honorary uh, reaching out of friendship. So he gets this special morsel and the moment of decision comes, right, for Judas. What does it say? Verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Let me stop there for just a second. This is further proof that Ju Judas was never born again, right? 
This is so important. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence within a believer, he or she cannot be possessed by a demon. So we know right here that he was never a believer. I don't think there's any doubt that Satan had targeted Judas as an asset in his war, his struggle against the Son of God. And then he focused on grooming him into this very moment to becoming the betrayer. And it's also important to note that Judas opened the door for Satan to come in. How? Through a lifestyle of consistent, unconfessed sin and persistent unbelief. We open the door when we do that. When we live a life of unconfessed sin and persistent unbelief, we crack that, we give a foothold to the enemy if we're an unbeliever. If we're a believer, he cannot come in. So we got to make sure we know that. Back to verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Not just the time of day, but into spiritual darkness. So I promised last Sunday that we'd try to answer the big question. What was it that, that brought Judas to this point where he was willing to, to betray the master? How could he get to this place where he could actually do this wicked thing? Let's try to answer that question. Well, first of all, we should be careful not to speculate too much because though we have some clues in the text, it's not explicitly laid out. We could say this and absolutely stop, and this would be enough. Judas was not chosen to be saved, full stop. That would be enough, right? Jesus said it in verse 18. He was very clear. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. We could stop there. But we know that Judas was marked out for a different type of role, a very unique role. When we get to chapter 17, we're going to hear Jesus speak of Judas as the son of perdition or the son of destruction. And we're going to hear him say that his perishing came about in order to fulfill the scriptures. So this whole affair, everything that's happening here, including the betrayal, it's all being orchestrated by God. God is moving things towards his redemptive plan. And we see his sovereign hand at work both in the saving of the 11 and in the eternal perishing of Judas. None of that's by accident. We have to know that. Now, the fact that Judas was marked out for this role doesn't take away his personal responsibility for the sin. Hear this clearly, because this is where we often get, we get all wonky on this, don't we, as, as, as finite human beings, because we have a hard time holding this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It is true that God did not choose Judas to be redeemed. Nevertheless, what Judas did is exactly what Judas wanted to do. We have to know that. It's true, God didn't choose him, but let me say it again. What Judas did was exactly what Judas wanted to do. He acted according to his nature. He acted in line with his flawed character. He acted according to his own selfish self-determination. And, he, and, and he's responsible for that. Too many people with a defective view of salvation try to lay the, lay the blame for this on God, saying, well, well, God didn't choose Judas, so how could he do anything else? That's really terrible logic. I'll give you a scenario, and there's no perfect analogy when you're dealing with, with God, but here's an analogy. Say you're a parent, you have a teenage son who wants to buy a very expensive bike, 
But as the authority in his life, you have authority over his life. You say no, and you choose not to give him any money to purchase that bike. And then he goes out and he steals the amount in order to, to purchase the bike. Are you responsible for that sin or is he? But you could have given him the money and you didn't. So you made him sin, didn't you? Nobody would go down that road of logic, right? That's not you making your son sin. It's what he wanted to do because of the desires of his heart. Again, no perfect analogy when you're dealing with God, but understand that. This is key. There was no external coercion on the part of God that caused Judas to develop ungodly idols in his heart. God didn't make Judas greedy. That wasn't God's fault. God doesn't cause wicked ambitions and lust to fester in our minds. That's what we do, right? Spurred on by demonic forces. And so Judas, who in spite of all appearances was never born again, he left the door open to Satan's influence. He followed the wicked desires of his heart and he willingly betrayed the Lord. And in doing so, both of these things are true. And this is the tension, right? Number one, he fulfilled scripture. And number two, he bears the full and eternal weight of responsibility for that sin. Both of those things are true. Okay, with that said, let's try to analyze Judas's betrayal now as a lesson and a warning for us. How did he get to that point where he was willing to turn away from this outward loyalty that he had sort of cultivated for three years, right? And then turn towards darkness. I think there's three possible reasons. Number one, yeah, it could have been the money. It could have been greed. We've seen how Judas stole from the money bag. We've seen how when Mary poured all that expensive perfume on the Lord's feet, he thought it was what? A waste. So we've seen that his heart was bent towards materialism and greed. And for us as a lesson, we have to guard our hearts too against greed. Guys, listen to me. There are so many things we can be greedy for. It's not just money. Our mind goes first to money, but there are so many things. You can be greedy for attention and greedy for admiration and greedy for comfort and greedy for time, greedy for leisure, for relationships. Greedy for social media likes, right? Some people are greedy for gaming a system, for getting over on other people. Greedy for gaining advantage by manipulation. There's a million subtle ways that we can fall into the trap of greed. Calvin's famous for saying this, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And greed is a big part of that. And of course, where does unchecked greed lead us? into a whole bunch of other sins, right? Jealousy, envy, and coveting. It starts with our selfish, excessive desire to have something, and when we don't get it, then it slips into bitterness and discontent, and many times a very subtle but pent-up animosity towards people who have the things that we don't have. And you think I'm crazy about it. Think about this. Have you ever come off a really long stretch of tiring work, and you're going through financial struggles, and you open up Facebook, and there are those people, once again, living a beautiful life, all kinds of leisure time, right? They're going to Hawaii for the third time this year, and you're like, oh, right? Greed that leads to envy and jealousy and coveting. By the way, I know this is a whole other sermon, but seriously, consider that as you manage your social media account. What are you posting? And are you, without realizing it, leading your brothers or sisters into a temptation and a snare? Whole nother sermon, but it's something to think about. 
This quote is true. It's a great warning for us. Greed is like a termite, right? It's out of sight, but it bores deep into the heart. So it's something we've got to be aware of, something we've got to be battling, something we have to guard our hearts diligently from. Now, with Judas, I'm not sure greed's the whole story. A part of the problem? Probably. But I don't think it's enough to explain this betrayal. Scholars have actually looked at the amount of money that he earned by the betrayal, which was how much? 30 pieces of silver. And that would have been equivalent to somewhere around three or four months worth of average wages in that day. Now, that's not a small amount, but is that enough to change the course of somebody's life? It isn't. So maybe that's not the whole thing. Maybe there's more involved. Here's the second motivation. It's possible, some scholars have suggested, that Judas had more of a revolutionary zealotry than he let on. That that's what was going on in his heart. They had a very selfish reason for following Jesus in the first place. Because like so many Jews in his generation, the thing that he wanted more than anything else was to see the Gentile oppressors driven out of Israel and to establish a Jewish kingdom in the land. And if so, some scholars have said, well, maybe Judas was holding back on his support for Jesus, holding back and trusting in him until he could ascertain whether or not Jesus was going to become that type of political Messiah that he selfishly desired in his heart. And when things, the trajectory of Jesus' ministry was going not towards that, but the opposite, Jesus started talking about dying. At that moment, Judas began to plot to cut his losses and to eventually hand over the Lord. Possible. Is there a lesson there for us? Could be. Here's the question. If somebody dug deep into the motivation behind your loyalty to Jesus, would they find something self-serving there? If we're able to dig in your heart and figure out why are you loyal to Christ, is there something there that might be self-serving? In other words, your loyal to Jesus is predicated less on worshiping him for who he is and more on what he can bring to your life, what he can do for you, to bring you prosperity, to make your life run smoother, to cause people around you to think that you've, you're all squared away and you're living godly, to magically make all your sinful inclinations go away, whatever it might be. But ultimately, at the core of your loyalty and love for Jesus is what he might do for you. So listen, if your love for Jesus is in any way contingent upon expectations that you have put on him, oh, I, I expect Jesus to do this for me, or I, I demand, and we'd never say that out loud, but we might say it in our hearts, demand that he do these things for me, you might be in spiritual danger right now. So guard your heart with all diligence. Here's the third possibility. Fear. Fear. It's possible that Judas saw where all of this was headed. It's just a matter of time before the authorities grab Jesus and me too. All of us, we're all going down for this. He figured that out, so he did what criminals still do today. They go to the police before their co-conspirators and they cut a deal to save their skin. And I think, it's, I think it's important to be honest. The power of Rome would make a coward out of anybody in this room. Think about this. It, the, the idea of ending up on a Roman cross would make all of us fearful. And if you can't understand that, you haven't been able to put your, your feet in the sandals uh, of, of the characters in this story to, to try to feel that fear. It's a very real thing. 
Don't forget Peter on this very same night also succumbed to fear, didn't he? Three times he's going to deny even knowing the Lord because of this very fear of being arrested by the authorities, being tried, ending up in Pontius Pilate's court on a cross maybe. It could just be fear. Yes, there's a lesson for us here as well. As we live in this culture that's growing darker and darker, where persecution is is growing closer and closer for so many years, we didn't feel persecution in America. But now we have to battle against fears that threaten to shut us up, that threaten to make us uh, sort of, you know, cower in the corner. Fear of identifying with Jesus now, fear of sharing our faith publicly, fear of taking a stand for biblical truth, for a biblical worldview, fear of losing a job because I'm a Christian, fear of being mocked or attacked for our faith. Those are real, real possibilities, and Jesus told us that, right? They're going to hate you because they hated me first. He promised us this. So if you don't expect that hatred to come your way and you're not prepared to bear up for it, or bear up under it for God's glory, then you might be in spiritual danger right now. So guard your heart with all diligence. So maybe it's a combination of those things. I don't think it's just the money. I think there's a lot going on here, and man, it's one of the, again, I got questions when I get to heaven. I want to know all the answers to all these things, right? All right, before we get to the end of the story of Judas, I want to shift the spotlight for a moment back onto Jesus. And I want to look at this, this story again and look at the two aspects of his personhood so that we can see both his deity and his humanity in this story. I think this is really important. Let's talk about, first of all, how Jesus' deity is magnified in this account. And here's how it is. As God the Son, he is in sovereign control of everything that's taking place, even his arrest, even his betrayal. He knows it's going to happen. He knows the how, the when, the where. He knew, he's, we've seen before, he's known the truth about Judas from the very beginning. Nothing is a surprise to him. We read back in chapter 10 regarding his life. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That can only be true because he is God in the flesh. No human being can make that statement, right? I have the authority to lay my mouth and the authority to lift it up again. He has to be God or he's a liar, right? So in my mind, it does raise a question. If, if he's that sovereign, let me ask this question. Why, why pick Judas in the first place? And don't you think in retrospect, the other 11 were like, I don't get it. Why would you pick him? You knew who he was. And so this is, this is where the difference between God's ways and man's ways becomes so clear, right? This, Luke tells us that before Jesus chose the 12, it says that he spent the night in prayer. What does that tell us? That he came out of that and he knew that he was going to select a traitor. That it was the Father's will that Jesus select a traitor to be in his midst. Jesus hand-selects the betrayer. That means, yes, it was the Father's will to embed a traitor in his own son's inner circle. That is an amazing thing. Would you or I ever plan to do that? Would we intentionally set out to do that? Never. We'd pick the, most, the friendliest 12 guys we could possibly find, the, the 12 most supportive people we could find. God says, I've got a different plan. I want you to pick a traitor. Now, a second question could be raised. Okay, so let's say, all right, we get it. This is the Father's will. How about this question? Why put Judas in charge of the money? <laughs> right? 
Why put him in charge of the money bag? He could have put Nathaniel in charge of it. Remember what's, what is said of Nathaniel? Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's my guy, <laughs> right? Or at least Matthew, the guy has a financial background. But he chooses Judas. You might be tempted to offer Jesus some advice about good stewardship. I mean, Lord, look, we're working off alms here, right? I mean, people are, people are they're, they're sacrificing, they're giving to our work. Did you have to put the guy you knew was a devil in charge of the money? But this is far from poor judgment on Jesus' part. Because he knows Judas' heart, because he, he knows that Judas was stealing. Think about how that fact illustrates several of his key teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Look at this, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal. The example of Judas tangibly shows us how easily sin can lead to us losing the things that we, we think are precious on the earth, including money from the disciples' pot. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Could there be a better example of this than Judas? Where was Judas's treasure? By handling the money, Jesus shows us the heart-blinding end of treasuring the wrong things. Like, if you want an example of this passage, look at Judas. He treasured the wrong things. Matthew 6, 24, a few verses later. No one can serve two masters, for either will he hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In Judas, you have this double-minded man who is trying to do something that is impossible. Hear me on this. You cannot straddle the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. You cannot serve those two masters because ultimately one has to give way. And Judas is a great example of this. Listen, the idols of self in the world, they are demanding masters. They will demand your attention. They will demand your devotion. But the scripture says God will not share his glory with another. So you've got to pick one, right? So I'll warn you, Judas is a great example of this principle. If you try to straddle these two kingdoms, you will be the most miserable person imaginable because you'll never be happy in either one of them. Right? If you try to serve the world, your biblical convictions are going to haunt you. If you try to serve the kingdom, but you're wandering into sin, either way, you are a miserable human being. Cannot serve two masters. Eventually, God's going to break you. He's going to break you and force that decision. Cannot serve two masters. Judas is a prime example of this. Eventually, Judas broke, didn't he? And he fell away. All right. What about the humanity of Jesus? What do we see here? Well, there's a lot we could look at in this story, but for me, the most obvious part of how human Jesus is in the upper room, you see it in verse 21, where it says, He became troubled in spirit as he revealed to his friends the fact that somebody was going to betray him from the inside, somebody embedded in their own group, he becomes troubled in spirit. Listen, even though he is, this is that tension again, even though he is sovereignly in control of everything that's going on, being fully man, Jesus is not some emotionally detached actor who's just playing a role here. The pain that he feels in this is very real because he's fully man like us. And it's very intense. What's he troubled about? I'm going to give you a couple possibilities what he's so troubled about. Number one, there's the, per, the purely personal side of this. 
the personal side of betrayal. Knowing that a close companion is plotting to put a knife in your back is very, very painful. Someone you've walked through life with, somebody you've ministered to, somebody you've ministered with, somebody you've prayed with, somebody that you've loved, you've laughed with them, you've cried with them, that type of betrayal is brutal. It's one of the most emotionally painful things that you can experience on the earth. And I'll tell you from personal experience, many years ago before I went into the ministry and I, I worked in the corporate world, I had so many people betray me. But you know what? It's in, in the famous words of Michael Corleone, it's not personal. It's just business. And I accepted that. But I got to tell you, ministry, when you're in the kingdom of God and you're ministering with people, it's not just business. And the betrayals that you will feel in the church, the betrayals that I have felt in my, in my life as a pastor, they cut to the core, man. It hurts. It hurts deeper than I can even describe. So Jesus is hurting here because this is a friend, somebody he cares about that is plunging a knife in his back. So there's the personal aspect. Number two, for Jesus, this night was a glaring reminder of all the rebellion against God that exists in the world both human and angelic. And he senses it, right? Think about how troubling it must have been for Jesus as he became aware of the dark spiritual presence of Satan in that room, circling Judas, looking for his opportunity to strike. Jesus is aware of that. And then to have the betrayer sitting right next to him at the table, the spiritual heaviness of this must have been overwhelming. This idea of rebellion all around him the very perfect son of God senses rebellion in that room. And that's, I think, leads to the third troubled thing. Jesus understood what Judas's eternal destiny would be. He knew where his friend was going. And that hurts. He knew that Judas was about to walk out of the light and into the darkness of death and hell. And he knows, Jesus knew the terrors that await a person in hell. Think about that. I don't think we can fully understand what's happening in the scene unless we appreciate how much it hurt Jesus to see Judas fall away like this. Finally, one last troubling thing, and this one's obvious. I don't think it could ever go out of his mind that the betrayal was sort of the, the, the last pin that had to drop before he's arrested. He knows he's about to face the humiliation and pain of bearing in his own body the penalty of sin that was embodied by, by Judas that night. There's a lot going on in this story. It's so easy to read right through it and go, oh, interesting story. There's a lot going on here and a lot of troubling things for Jesus. Okay, let's wrap up the story. Later that night, how does Judas respond to Jesus being arrested and tried? Matthew 27 tells us, I'm gonna put it on the screen. Matthew 27 to three, three to five says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. Look at that term, seized with remorse. It's just one word in the original Greek. It's the verb metamelomai, and it's not the standard word for repent that we see all over the pages of the New Testament. That is so important to understand. It is not the word for repent. This is a different word, far less common. And the best way to understand that word is regret. Judas regretted what he had done. He regretted what he had done. What he, he, he betrays Jesus. He sees the chief priest condemn him. Now he knows Jesus is going off to Pilate, 
to Rome and he regrets his choice. And he says, what, why? I have sinned, he said to the chief priest, for I betrayed innocent blood. This remorse, this regret, listen, it's an emotional response. It's not a change of heart. Okay, Judas felt guilty about what, what he'd done. He might have even shed tears over it, but he had not repented of it. That's so important to understand. And what Judas does next tells us everything. Question for you, what does a repentant person do after they've sinned against God? That godly sorrow leads them to run to God, towards God, not away from him. What does Judas do? Judas's regret, this emotional response, causes him to run not to God, seeking forgiveness, but into the arms of death. He says this, I have betrayed innocent blood. <laughs> Look at his co-conspirators. What is that to us? They reply. That's your responsibility. They've said it themselves. Can you hear the snark in that? What's that to us? We got our man. You deal with that. Judas realizes too late that he is not going to get any help from the chief priests. They were not going to be able to offer him the absolution that he wanted in that moment, right? These are his religious authorities, not Jesus, the chief priest. But they're not offering absolution. He has to deal with the consequences by himself. And what comes from that is an overwhelming despair that causes him to pile sin on top of sin. And he commits suicide. Wow. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and hanged himself. Remorse, not repentance. Regret, not repentance. We have to see that. Now let's do some comparative work here. I want you to, to, to now put Judas up here and put Peter up here as well. This may surprise you, but both of them betrayed the Lord. We often don't speak in those terms. Both of them betrayed the Lord that night, right? Not as extreme as Judas, but Peter betrayed him three times. In the master's darkest hour, he turned his back on him. Yet between Peter and Judas, one goes down in history as a great hero of the faith, and one goes down as what? The great villain of faith. So we ought to be able to say, well, what's the difference? What's interesting is that Jesus predicted both of them, right? It's so interesting. But notice the difference. To Judas, he says, go. What you're going to do, do it quickly. But according to Luke, he says something very different to Peter, doesn't he? He says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that's language of repentance. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. With Judas, Jesus offers no hope. Go, do your wicked deed, get it done. But with Peter, Jesus expresses a certainty that he's going to repent and return. He's sovereign over this. Comes back to choice, doesn't it? I hate, we just keep coming back. One is chosen, one is not. And Jesus is certain of both of their destinies. And it plays out that way. According to the sovereign Lord, Judas runs to end his life and Peter comes full circle to a changed heart and to a changed life. And ultimately, when we get to the end of John's gospel, if we ever get there, we will see that, Judas, or that, that wow, Jesus restores Peter, reconciles with him and restores him fully. Very different. So know this. Judas and Peter's guilt are both the same, but their responses are very different. That's what we have to take from this. What do you do when you stumble into sin? Man, the moment of decision in life, right? Because we're all going to do it. We're going to stumble. Sometimes we do intentionally plan to sin. 
What do you do afterwards? What do you do? As I said last week, Judas had heard Jesus teach the parable of the prodigal son. He knew the character of God. He knew that God always has his arms wide open if you'll come and repent. He heard that, didn't he? With his own ears, but he didn't really have ears to hear, did he? He didn't have ears to hear. This is a lesson for us. Do you have ears to hear what God has promised in his compassionate nature, in his forgiving nature? Do you have ears to hear that? Don't sit in your guilt. Don't sit in your guilt and let it eat you alive and drive you to despair. Turn again, as Peter did. Run to God and seek his mercy. The throne of grace is open to you. It's Hebrews 4. Since we have a great high priest, do we affirm that we have a great high priest? Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Judas didn't have that confidence. He wasn't born again. If you're here this morning and you're born again, you have that confidence to come to the throne of grace. Don't sit in your junk. Don't sit there in it. Don't despair. You've got a great high priest. So as we wrap up on these two weeks of Judas, let me ask the question I asked again last week. And I know some of you sent me notes. He said, thank you for that question. It, it hit me really hard. I'll, I'll ask it again. What would it take to lure you away from your loyalty to Christ and his word? And I don't ask that question to tempt you or to cause you to stumble, but only that you would consider, is Jesus really your first love? Or is there something else that could bubble up to the surface of your heart and drag you away? This is part of that process. Paul talks about this process of examining yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. I care about you, everyone in this room care about your spiritual condition. I care about your eternal destiny. I don't want anybody in here to one day get up from the table and walk out into the night. Not one of you. So ask the question. Examine yourself to see if you're in, your, if you're in the faith. Is there a greater love in your heart than Jesus? Could you be lured away? And if you have any questions about that, any concerns about it, you're like, oh man, I'm I'm, I do have concerns. Will you reach out to me or to an elder at this church? Let us help. Let us help. That's what, we, that's what we live for. That's what we're serving for is to help in those situations. Let me close out with a few key passages that you can just jot down. How many of you guys have read the book of Jude recently? Nobody reads Jude. It's a hard book. I've got some Jude passages here that are amazing. These are passages that can exhort us to heed God's warnings so that we don't fall away. Jude, verses 20 and 21. Look at this. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. That phrase, keep yourselves, honestly, in the Greek, the best way to understand it is tend to yourselves. Guard yourselves in the love of God. It's an active faith. Ours is an active faith. Do we know that? You've got to take care. You've got to guard. You've got to keep yourselves in the love of God every single day. 
Guys, we can't put, you can't put your spiritual walk on autopilot. It doesn't work that way. Tend to your love for God. Guard your love as primary in your heart. And as we do that, don't forget the responsibility that we have towards one another. Our spiritual walk is not just for us. It's for the community of faith. Going back to Hebrews 3. It says, exhort one another. How often? Every day. I mean, does that tell you something about how how important this is? Every day, exhort one another, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Man, sin gets in there, right? And it'll harden a heart. It'll mess you up. So you've got brothers and sisters here to exhort you. Don't let that happen. Go back with confidence to the throne of grace. Find that mercy in your time of need. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's great to begin in faith, firm to the end. I said it last week, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. Our church covenant, we will walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another and faithfully admonishing one another when the occasion arises. It is so important. So important. And what if we see a brother or sister in crisis? Listen again to Jude. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Man, when things get tough, and the world's getting tougher out there, right? We're going through it. When we haven't seen or heard from a fellow member in a while, or we know somebody is struggling, it's on every person in this room to reach out. It's not just on the elder team. Trust me, we are watching and we are scrambling and we're doing everything we can. This is a church-wide thing. You don't see somebody for a while, you're picking up that phone. Not because you want to, at them, but because you love them. That's on all of us. And when we do, go with compassion. If they're wavering, go with compassion. Encourage them, walk alongside them. But if they're drifting away, and they're in spiritual danger, snatch them from the fire. We're called to that. Look at, look, at the, look at the power by the spirit that we're given to snatch people from the fire. Are you kidding me? As they're drifting away, as they're in spiritual danger, to jump into that life and say, I'm here with you. I'll walk with you in this. Bottom line, we can't just focus on our own personal walk. We have to have eyes to see what's going around us in the body. And then finally, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged these days by the false doctrines flying around. It's everywhere. Don't join Twitter. Evangelical Twitter's a mess. Don't be discouraged by it. Don't be discouraged by the apostasy that is becoming so common today. Remember, Scripture told you this was going to happen. The Bible told you it was going to happen. But we get so shook by it. Again, back to Jude. Look at this passage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. Not born again. No spirit. Not saved. So don't let the Judases of the world shake you or the Damases of the world shake you. When you see a celebrity pastor fall, don't be shook. 
When you see you know, some professing theologian walk away from the faith, when you hear somebody criticize and mock your faith, don't be shaken by it. Know that scripture predicts it. Know that church history is filled with these examples. This is not a, this is not a brand new period of, of church history that we're in right now. This has been going on for 2,000 years. And know that the bride of Christ will never be perfect this side of heaven. But we're in it together. If you say that you love Jesus, but you're about to give up on the church because of the people, because of the hypocrisy, whatever it might be, on the church that he established, on the church that he sustains, on the church that he built, if you're going to give up on that church, then you're not following Jesus. You're not following him. All glory to him, right? Are we in this together? Let's pray together. Father, I, uh, I thank you uh, for, I thank you, Lord, that you endured this moment in the upper room in such a way as to, as to teach us so many valuable lessons, that you, Lord, you watched your, your companion Judas fall away in this horrific, tragic way, and you've shown us so many things that we can learn from it. Lord, I pray this week, even today, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would begin to reveal things to us that we might need to deal with, competing idols in our heart, things that we know, God, that we ought to push away and return to you, turn again, come back to you, to the throne of grace, that we would make you our first and only love, Lord. Seal these truths to our hearts, Lord. Work in us. And God, I pray for anybody that's here this morning that hasn't bowed their knee yet and they've, they've heard the story of Judas and they're, they're rightly concerned. Lord, would you draw them to yourself? And for those right now who are concerned even about the competing things in their heart, that they would have the courage to reach out and to get help from a brother or sister that loves them. Lord, I th- the best news is, is that my words this morning have no power at all. Only you have that power, Lord. You know what's happening in every single person here this morning. So Lord, I pray that your sovereign hand would be upon us, that you would do an awesome work in this body as we continue to be sanctified together for your glory. Thank you for our time this morning, Lord. We love you. Amen.